Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Criminal behavior analysis, as it applies to crime scene investigation, is a skill set that is hotly debated amongst investigators and true crime enthusiasts. The process, known as profiling, is a method of investigation performed primarily by special agents in the FBI's Behavior Analysis Unit. Profilers are called in by local law enforcement when they have a violent crime without any leads, no forensic evidence, and no suspects. FBI profilers will employ years of education and experience to analyze the crime scene in an attempt to determine the behavior of the offender or unsub, unidentified subject. The concept, while it may seem complex, really is quite the opposite. As students of human behavior, the special agents move past the what of the crime scenes and focus more on the why. The process tries to figure out why the particular victim or victims were chosen by the offender or offenders, why the offender chose that particular time and place for the attack, and lastly, why they behaved the way that they did during the commission of the offense and in the immediate moments after. This information is then used to predict pre- and post-offense behaviors of the offender or offenders. And lastly, the analysis is used to narrow down a suspect pool. Profilers believe that the analysis of behavior at a crime scene oftentimes will have the effect of holding a mirror up to the offender or offenders. Opposers of the profiling approach will say that criminal behavior analysis is nothing more than reading tea leaves. It's hocus-pocus mumbo-jumbo and has no place in criminal investigations. Profiles are not always accurate, and some believe that they should never be used. So before I begin my behavior analysis of the forgotten West Memphis 3 crime scene, I want to talk for a minute about my own personal views on profiling. To begin with, it's important for me to point out that I myself am not a profiler. I have no formal training in the field at all. Any amount of skill that I possess in this realm of investigation is from a few years of on-the-job training and a lot of advice and direction from retired FBI profiler Jim Clementi. I would rate my personal abilities as a criminal behavior analyst as just slightly above novice. The reason that I point that out is to be crystal clear about the fact that the analysis that I'm about to provide is not fact and should not be taken as such. It is simply my personal assessment of the crime scene and should be considered a launch point for discussion and nothing else. As I've done in previous seasons, I will deliver my personal profile of the crime scene based on the information that I have at hand currently. 
Then together, as we move forward, we will continue to reassess the profile with input from all of you. Then later, we will bring an actual expert profiler onto the show to deliver a professional analysis. Before we begin, it's important to point out that a profile, whether created by a novice like myself or a professional like Clementi or John Douglas, is only as good as the information provided to the profiler. In fact, every profile ever written by the FBI contains a disclaimer that says exactly that, with the added caveat of the profile is subject to change if and when new information becomes available. Keep in mind that in this case, or any case for that matter, a profile is simply an investigative tool. It is not a substitute for forensic evidence. It is simply a starting point for law enforcement. It gives them an idea of the type of person that they should be looking for. It is not, by any means, an end-all, be-all. In this case, we need to fill in some gaps in what we know about the crime scene and the victims themselves. Unfortunately, in order for me to proceed, I'm forced to make some judgment calls. The opinions of the doctors that performed the autopsies and reviewed them, as you know, vary widely. Summarily, Dr. Peretti believes that the boys were tortured with a knife or knives, with the offender or offenders scratching, scraping, and stabbing all three victims. Not deep stabs, but more taunting type attacks all over the bodies. He believes they were beaten about their faces and that Michael and Stevie were then drowned in the creek, whereas Christopher Byers was emasculated by the offender using a knife where he bled to death. Dr. Spitz, on the other hand, believes that the boys were simply drowned. There were some minor pre-mortem injuries, but the majority of the damage on the bodies occurred post-mortem by animals, including the emasculation or degloving of Christopher Byers' genitals. Peretti does not see signs of sexual assault, but will not rule it out, whereas Spitz does completely rule out sexual assault. I do not possess the education or experience to determine who is right and who is wrong. I can say that I spent two full days reading every detailed individual finding from Dr. Spitz and comparing his testimony and analysis to textbooks, including his own. From that analysis, I believe that his logic and reasoning are consistent with the decades of teaching of forensic pathology. Ultimately, it comes down to what he is or is not seeing. In many occasions, Peretti and Sterner say that they see hemorrhaging in a wound, whereas Spitz and Suveron do not. At this point in the process, I have to make a judgment call based on all of the opinions. I've also had to factor in some new information. I've conducted a lot of interviews that you all will hear later, once we get to that point in the investigation. I do, however, need to introduce two statements at this point that affect our view of the crime scene. Number one, I spoke to a man named Robert Posey this fall. Robert is the brother of Bobby Posey. At the time of the murders, Robert lived in the Mayfair Apartments and worked at the Blue Beacon Truck Wash. For two years, at least five evenings a week, Robert would walk across the pipe bridge to go to work at the Blue Beacon, and then cross that same pipe to return back after his shifts. Robert told me that in the hundreds of times that he crossed that pipe and walked through the woods where the boys were found, which he called Turtle Hill, he never once saw another person in the woods, nor did he ever see any evidence of people hanging out in the woods. This is important because we have to consider the fact that the boys went into those woods and just happened to cross someone or someones who were already there and up to no good. Now, we can't rule that out by any means, but Robert's statement is something that we need to keep in the back of our minds. 
since according to him, there were not typically people hanging out in those woods. It would be an interesting coincidence if on this day there just happened to be people in the woods, they just happened to be child killers, and three boys who don't typically go into the woods happened to skip out on their curfews and go in there that night. Secondly, I spent quite a bit of time with someone recently who was actually a part of the search party on the night the boys went missing. You will hear this full interview in a later episode, but for right now, you need to know what he told me about the pipe bridge. This source told me that after 8 p.m. on May 5th, he was following a fresh set of bike tracks through Robin Hood Woods on the south side of the bayou. There was a group of teenagers traveling with him helping with the search. He says that he followed the tracks all the way to the pipe that crossed the bayou into Turtle Hill. It was around 8.45 p.m. at this point and almost completely dark. He told me that the bike tracks stopped just before the pipe as though someone had tossed them into the weeds on the south side of the bayou. He then noticed a single set of muddy footprints that appeared as though a single person had walked right across the top of the pipe bridge. This information is critically important, because if true, it is a very good indication that by 8.45 p.m., the bikes had already been thrown into the bayou, and that the offender had already killed and concealed the boys' bodies and retreated back into the neighborhood. Next, I'm going to give you my current hypothesis as to how this crime occurred. It's this hypothesis that I will be basing my profile on. Now, before I present my hypothesis, I want to give out one disclaimer. Do not take this as fact, and that's because it's not. It is simply my current take on the circumstances surrounding the murders. You may disagree with me, and I very well could be wrong. This is nothing more than a hypothesis. I believe that throughout the afternoon, the boys or one of the boys came into contact with someone who was angry with them. This individual went out looking for the boys or one of the boys to teach them a lesson, so to speak, to punish them. I believe the boys left their bikes on the south side of the pipe bridge and walked across the pipe in order to hide from someone that they knew was looking for them. I don't believe that they would have taken the bikes with them over the pipe. At the time of the murders, the water level was very high, within a foot of the bottom of the pipe, and it was flowing rapidly. It would look dangerous and scary to an 8-year-old, or even an adult for that matter, and I don't believe that they would have risked navigating the pipe with their bikes. Further evidence of this is the witness statement that I mentioned earlier. The bike track stopped short of the pipe. The ground leading the pipe was muddy, and there was no evidence of the bike tracks leading to it. This individual also later looked on the other side of the pipe and saw no bike tracks on that side either. I believe that a single offender found the bikes and crossed the pipe looking for at least one of the boys. He found them in the Turtle Hill woods and eventually killed all three boys. I don't think that the offender had murder in mind when he crossed over the pipe. I believe that the murders began as a punishment and or control of the boys. I believe the punishment went too far, and he made the decision to drown the boys in order to protect himself from being found out. I think that the situation escalated quickly, and within minutes of finding the boys, all three were dead or at least unconscious. I think that the killer immediately knew that he needed to hide the bodies, and attempted to do so by putting them in the water. 
believed that Michael Moore was the last of the three to be submerged. The offender quickly realized that his method of concealment would not work. The boy's limbs and clothing kept floating up to the surface and exposing themselves. Quick on his feet, the killer removed the boys from the water. Michael, being the last into the water, was the first to be taken out. Thinking all three boys were dead, the offender stripped the boys' clothes and removed their shoelaces from their shoes. He began binding the boys in order to keep their limbs from floating to the surface of the water. At this point, Christopher and Stevie were indeed deceased, but Michael had not been in the water long enough to expire. He wakes up and tries to get away, but the shoelace bindings kept him from getting very far. The offender catches him about 25 feet away from the other two boys and holds him underwater until he's sure that he's dead. The reason that my hypothesis revolves around Michael not dying in the first attempt is twofold. Number one, his proximity to the other two victims. And number two, Dr. Peretti examined the skin under the shoelace ligatures of all three boys under a microscope. Neither Stevie or Christopher showed any signs of bruising or hemorrhaging under the bindings, meaning that they were applied post-mortem. Michael, on the other hand, did show hemorrhaging and bruising under his bindings. This is a clear indication that he is the only one who fought against his bindings while he was still alive. Once all three boys were dead, the offender, moving quickly, used sticks intertwined with the bindings to secure the boys into the creek bottom, completely hiding them from view. The offender then gathered the boys' clothing and wrapped them around sticks and pressed them down into the mud as well. I believe that he then looked around the crime scene and saw that the muddy bank was covered in his own footprints along with the footprints of the boys. He splashes water up onto the banks and uses his hands to smooth out the mud. When he's done, there is no visible evidence that he or the boys had been there. He remembers the bikes that he had seen back by the pipe and he heads back that way. He crosses over the pipe bridge back into the neighborhood side of the bayou. He is wet and muddy and leaves his footprints on the pipe bridge. At this point, he is exposed. Just over the hill is Mayfair Apartments and several houses. He grabs the bikes and tosses them into the deep, muddy waters of the bayou. He then retreats, not to the dead end of the Mayfair Apartments as I had previously assumed. Instead, he travels through the secluded trails of Robin Hood Woods back to the place where he had originally entered the woods looking for the boys. Once in the neighborhood, he finds a place to clean up and likely join the search efforts. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Based on this hypothesis of the crime, I will give you my analysis or profile, so to speak, of the type of offender that I believe that we should be looking for. But before we get into my amateur analysis, I want to play a short clip for you of retired supervisory special agent John Douglas at the same press conference that we discussed last week. John Douglas is known to most throughout the world as the father of profiling. He, along with others, created the division of the FBI known today as the Behavioral Analysis Unit. Douglas spent over 25 years honing his skills as a profiler in the FBI. He has interviewed dozens of the world's most notorious serial killers. He studied them, learned from their behaviors, and used that information to develop a model to profile the behaviors of other killers. John was hired by the defense team at the same time that Spitz and Suveron were retained. The defense had made a decision to shoot for the stars and seek out the best in every area of the investigation, and John Douglas certainly fit the bill. This is what he had to say at the press conference. Thank you. Good morning. We, in fact, were contacted in, um, in 1993. Two of my colleagues were contacted. We primarily provided uh, uh, advice relative to uh, neighborhood investigations, what types of questions they should be asked uh, when they went around the neighborhood knocking on doors. We then were contacted later during the trial, and Ken Lanning was contacted by one of the prosecutors about utilizing uh, Satanism as a, uh, as a defense. And Lanning, a good friend of mine and colleague, laughed at him and said, you better not use it. You better not use uh, Satanism as a defense the, the, uh, because the defense team is going to chew you up and spit you out. Just go with your forensic evidence. Just have you leave with your forensic evidence uh, for the solution of the crime. Well, as we know, there were no, no forensic evidence to, uh, to, uh, to go on, so they fell, fell back on Satanism as a motive in this uh, in this case. In the early 1970s and 80s, we began to see at the FBI Academy uh, uh, police officers coming in from around the world. The media was playing up that there were 50,000 children abductions in the United States. One out of three children were being sexually assaulted. Um, and as a result of this type of, uh, of information, I went to the National Institute of Justice and I received uh, two grants to conduct research. First research was sexual homicide patterns and motives, and the second research was to conduct a, uh, conduct a, a violent crime study on a crime classification manual, which, we, which we're now in the second, uh, second edition. The first edition, we addressed every possible homicide. We considered using Satanism as a possible, you know, as, as a possible category. But then we decided to go out and conduct interviews, like David Burke was the son of Sam, and Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, which we did, and, and hundreds of other cases. And the cops were kind of throwing around words like ritual in, in their cases, and, um, and, and using it interchangeably with, with satanic, uh, satanic crimes. We did a close evaluation. We looked at these cases. Ken Lanning, I, and my, and my other colleagues, we didn't see one. We didn't, we didn't see one case. And, that, and the first publication was in 1992. This was just published. The second edition was just published uh, last year in September of uh, 2006. And those 50,000 kids that were being abducted in the United States, we worked through the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinqu Delinquency Protection. There's about 100 every year that uh, that are, are abducted, true true abductions of, of children, stranger types of uh, types of homicides. That's all we uh, that's all we see. All the other abductions are pretty much parental types types of abductions, and we usually recover those children. 
So being tasked with this, I, I was interested, is this going to be the first case? I, I knew a little bit about it, not much about it. I didn't want to interview the subjects in the case that were convicted. I wanted to rely just just on the uh, on the facts, the information. I did get to interview some of the some of the announced suspects uh, in this particular case. And the crime classification manual was broken down into group cause, meaning is there multiple offenders involved in this case? Is it a sexual homicide? Is is that the motive? Is it a uh, is it a criminal enterprise? Meaning that is there an angle where there's a financial connection? Uh, to to the subject and the and the children and the fourth one is whether or not it's a personal cause homicide. I looked at all the different categories. I looked and reviewed the the information relative to the to the case, and pretty pretty clearly it was pretty easy to me to define this case as a personal cause homicide. This is not a, a homicide either perpetrated by a stranger. The person responsible for this crime. Uh, knew these victims and knew these victims uh, relatively well. The question I'd ask myself is, if the motivation is, is murder, if the initial intent is murder, go ahead and kill. Why did the subject decide to tie up the, the victims after stripping them down naked? I believe your initial intent in, in my analysis was not to kill, but was to taunt and to punish, punish these individuals. I saw criminal sophistication at the crime scene. The tying of the, the wrist to the ankles. I searched cases all over the world. I couldn't come up with similar types of cases. When I saw the offender, we call him the onsub, decide to get into the water and to secrete the clothing by pushing down the sticks, the sticks in the clothing, hiding the clothing, along with the three, the three victims, using that kind of concerted effort, we're not looking at teenagers committing crimes like this. We're looking at somebody who, who's relatively criminally sophisticated. We're looking at somebody who has been violent in, in, in the past, who's violent now, in, at the time this crime was perpetrated, and would also be, be violent in the, in the future. The person responsible for this crime can look at you right in the eye, can look at a camera and say that, that uh, I didn't do it. Because it's a psychopathic personality. There is no remorse. Anyone who perpetrates a crime like this and leaves the victims like this in this condition, he's only concerned about himself. You can put him on the polygraph, he'll pass the polygraph, particularly just 14, uh, 14 years later. So looking at this case to me, besides being a travesty of, of justice, this is not a satanic murder. There's no ritual. There's no ritualistic uh, uh, crime going on here. I talked to Mark Byers the other night. We, we talked with the families here. I told all the families. I said, Mark Byers' uh, son was not, was not targeted. Uh, everyone thought he was targeted. In fact, even Mark Byers would be the, the person responsible for the, for the triple homicide. The, the, the child who was targeted was targeted by a predatory animal that, that was exposed the greatest and, and where the animal could get to that child. It, it's equal. There was no preferential victim at all. All three children would be, be attacked by predatory animals. Yes, we do have a killer. And, and again, the killer went and, and through this concerted effort because he lives nearby. He tried to delay his identification because he lived in a neighborhood. And, and he did his best to delay, d delay that by hiding the bicycles, secreting the clothing, and also hiding the victims in the, uh, in the bayou. So later on, if you have any more specific questions, I'll be glad to uh, address them. Thank you. So that was John Douglas's summary of the profile of the crime scene. His profile was developed in 2007. Now, after a quick break to hear about today's sponsor, I'll be developing my profile based on the evidence that we've gathered and analyzed over the last few months. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Based on the hypothetical sequence of events that we discussed in the first segment... This is my opinion of the profile along with the reasoning behind each point. First and foremost, I believe that we are looking at a single offender. While it may seem unlikely for a single unsub to maintain control over three victims, practically speaking, it can be easily done by the right person. To begin with, we need to address the fact that the world is full of bad people. No one is denying that. However, only a very small percentage of those people are murderers. It takes a very certain kind of person to be able to take another human life. Even when the killing is necessary or justified, most people could never bring themselves to do it. If we look at our population as a whole and then filter it down to people who are willing to kill, then we further filter that number down to people who are willing to kill unprovoked, we're left with a pretty small number of people. That number can be cut even further when we consider the number of people that are willing to kill an innocent child. It takes a certain kind of psychopath to murder three children in cold blood. And yes, I do believe that our unsub is a certified psychopath. In order for there to be more than one offender, you have to have multiple people together with these specific psychopathic tendencies. Even if one was the aggressor, The idea of 25 years passing without one flipping on the other or others is highly improbable. The only way to keep a secret like this is for only one person to ever have known it occurred. Now, as we move forward along with our investigation, you're going to see that the police theory was that there were in fact multiple offenders, and in fact one of the three convicted indeed ratted out the other two. However, when we get to that point, you'll quickly realize the problems with that confession. So it's my opinion that there was only one single offender. And so we have to ask ourselves, if there was only one offender, then how could he maintain control of three victims while he killed them? In my opinion, this is a strong indication that our unsub was an authority figure to at least one, if not all three of the boys. And remember that all three of these boys came from abusive homes. They had first-hand experience in what happens to them when they ignore the orders of an adult. Remember that they are only 8 years old and they are not equipped with adult reasoning. It wouldn't take much more than a threat from an authority figure to obtain control of Michael, Stevie, and Christopher. Next, let's take a look at the body concealment. Our unsub put great effort into concealing the crime scene. The stripping of the bodies, their placement in the muddy water, the hiding of their clothing, the wiping down of the bank, the submersion of the bikes in the bayou. This offender knew that if the boy's bodies were found, that he would immediately be a suspect. His desire to conceal the crime was so strong that he was willing to take incredible personal risk in order to achieve it. He was busy working, stripping the boys down, removing their shoelaces from their shoes, tying them up, submerging them along with their clothes, and wiping down the bank in daylight just hundreds of feet from a neighborhood full of people a busy highway, and a busy truck wash. So why would he take the risk of spending what likely took at least 25 or 30 minutes with the dead bodies? 
In my opinion, the answer is because the unsub had a known personal relationship to the victims. Had these murders been committed by a stranger, say a trucker from the truck wash, for example, they would have no need to conceal the bodies. Remember, this was 1993. Most people were unaware of the existence of DNA evidence and even less aware of how it actually worked. It wasn't until 1995 during the O.J. Simpson trial when the general public became widely aware of this type of evidence. And even at that, at that point, the process mostly involved body fluids, blood and semen, for example. Touch DNA wasn't even a thing at that point. The point being that if a stranger from the truck stop happened to wander into the woods and kill three little boys, he would not take the risk of being caught with them. He would not take the risk of his truck being seen parked there for any longer than he needed it to be. The highway was right there. I believe that someone like that would just leave the bodies, get in his truck, and drive away as quickly as possible. And this is true of any stranger to the boys. If no one expected the unsub to be with the boys, and no one saw the unsub with them, there would be no reason for a stranger to spend that amount of time and energy and risk concealing their bodies. And that doesn't even take the bikes into account. The bikes were concealed in a different location. The evidence seems to suggest that they were thrown into the bayou right where the boys left them. This behavior continues to paint a picture of our unsub. Number one, it tells us that the offender accessed the crime scene from the neighborhood. Had he come from the interstate side, he likely wouldn't have even known the bikes were there. He had to cross back over the pipe and pass the bikes to get back to where he came from. It also tells us that he was likely on foot and therefore lived in the neighborhood. Had someone intentionally drove to the Turtle Hill Woods, surely they would have parked on the Blue Beacon side of the bayou. And remember, our witness told me that there was only one single set of muddy footprints on the pipe. I believe these tracks were the unsubs. Had he entered the woods from the north side of the bayou, you would see two sets of tracks. One crossing to get the bikes and another when he returned back to the other side after he threw them into the water. The one set of tracks tells me that his feet were not muddy and neither were the boys when they crossed the pipe initially. After walking in the muddy creek to conceal the bodies, he had muddy shoes when he returned back to the neighborhood side. The bikes also solidify my belief that the unsub had a known personal relationship to the boys. His risk increased exponentially when he came out of the cover of the woods in daylight in full view of the Mayfair apartments to cross back over the pipe and dispose of the bikes. A stranger would never take that extra risk, and no one whose direction of egress was towards the highway would have either. So that's the beginning of our profile. In my opinion, our unsub is an authority figure to at least one of the boys and has a known personal relationship to at least one of them as well. He was expected to be with at least one of the victims that evening meaning that either people knew that he would be with them or he knew that someone saw him with the boys. Our killer is a psychopath. People that know this unsub know him as manipulative and self-serving. The only person that he truly cares about is himself. He can present the appearance of caring relationships, but when push comes to shove, his needs will always come first. As I said before, it takes a very special kind of evil to kill innocent children. In this situation, I believe murder wasn't the plan. 
but the boys were killed out of self-preservation for the unsub. Whatever he did, however he went too far, he was at risk of being exposed and possibly going to jail if the boys told on him. In that moment, he decided that his own freedom was more important than the lives of three innocent eight-year-old boys. I believe that even to this day, the offender still feels no remorse for this crime because he has justified his actions in his own mind. This pattern of deeply rooted selfishness would be apparent in all areas of this man's life. He would have very few friends and the friends that he does have would likely be only for his own gain. He will never sacrifice his own happiness for anyone, ever. While this unsub is manipulative and even charming, he has a dark side that anyone who has spent a lot of time with him has witnessed. You don't begin your career as a violent offender with the murders of three small children. This offender would have a violent past and a violent future. Casual observers would describe him as a nice guy. He knows how to control and manipulate. But those close to him know that when things don't go his way, he will and does resort to violence. He would also be good at convincing his victims that the violence was actually their fault. They made him do it. Women, children, it wouldn't matter for him. He will always justify his violence and will never feel remorse for it. Now let's move on to the other element of the crime scene that may give us some insight into who this offender may be. Let's start with the method of body concealment. I believe that this is an indicator of someone who is criminally sophisticated, meaning that this is not the first time that they have broken the law and they have learned through trial and error how to avoid being caught. I believe that we are looking at what the FBI would call an organized offender. The concealment demonstrates a few more things as well. Our unsub is certainly intelligent and quick on his feet. While he may not have figured out right away that the clothing would need to be removed and the bodies tied up to create a smaller package in the water, it didn't take him long to find the flaws in the original plan and adapt and overcome. To me, this could be an indicator that our unsub has some past military experience. If not the military, possibly law enforcement or even a firefighter. I say this because while the offender has an explosive temper, he recovers quickly and is calm under pressure. Think of the soldier who was able to hold his position and execute his mission while bullets are zipping past his head. Remember that all of this is happening in daylight and just a hundred or so feet away from the truck wash, the highway, and the neighborhood. And I believe that he also knew that he needed to get out of those woods quickly to distance himself and to create an alibi. For the average person, the level of panic they would be experiencing in this situation would be unimaginable. But this offender, on the other hand, was able to keep his cool, create a plan, and execute it under extreme pressure and time constraints. Everything about these behaviors indicates a mature unsub. This guy has been around the block, and he's been through some shit, so to speak. He's not easily phased, and going back to his psychopathic personality, remember that this guy's number one priority is his own self-preservation, which I believe is what drove his focus in this situation. Keep in mind that the military or law enforcement are just examples of where our unsub could have picked up this ability to focus under pressure. It could be anything, but somewhere in his life he has learned to block out distractions and danger in order to focus on his own self-preservation.
people that know our unsub would recognize this characteristic in him. When everyone around him is freaking out and panicking, he's the one who is stoic and calm. Now, this is partially due to his background and partially due to his psychopathic personality. Whatever is happening that has everyone upset, if it doesn't affect him directly, he literally doesn't care. Now, if it does affect him, he will have a plan. Our unsub is also extremely resourceful. I believe the evidence indicates, as I've said, that the offender didn't enter the woods with murder in mind. He didn't bring a weapon with him, no rope, no shovels, nothing. However, in a matter of minutes, he was able to use the geography and resources at hand to accomplish his mission of concealing the bodies. The shoelaces to bind the boys, the sticks to pin them down in the creek bottom, as well as the sticks to conceal the clothing. These are all resources that he identified quickly and used. All of this is indicative of, again, a mature adult who is criminally experienced. The amount of forensic countermeasures that he took in such a short time under extreme pressure is astounding, even to the point of wiping down the banks of any obvious footprints or signs of a struggle. While the plan wasn't perfect, I mean, after all, the boys were found the next day, but given the circumstances and what he actually had to work with, he did an incredible job of concealing this crime scene and did accomplish the purpose which was to give him time to escape and create an alibi for himself. Our offender was a mature adult with a lot of life experience under his belt. Now let's look for a minute at how the bodies were concealed. We know from all the opinions of the autopsies that at least two of the victims were bound with the shoelaces post-mortem, after they were already dead. Stevie and Christopher showed no bruising or hemorrhaging on the skin under the bindings, even under a microscope. So then we ask ourselves, why bind them? Why bind dead bodies? In my opinion, this is an indicator that our unsub is either a hunter or has experience in the meat packaging business. While most people look at the way the boys were bound and say that they were hogtied, what I see is something different. I see the way you tie up a dead animal for transport. When moving game like, say, a deer, for example, you will tie their legs up to make them easier to move and position onto an ATV or a truck bed to make a smaller package. Now, with mammals like a deer, their back knees bend in the opposite direction as ours, so the bindings happen in the front. But to tie up a human in the same way, the legs would be tied in the back just like our victims. Now that's one possibility. The other, as I said, is someone who has packaged meat. If you go to the local meat market and buy anything from a rack of lamb, a prime rib, a roast, or a whole chicken or turkey, you'll notice that the meat is tied up with a string. Who uses strings to tie up flesh into a smaller package? Butchers do. Now let's look ahead to post-offense behavior. I think that our unsub's first move after concealing the bodies and the bikes would be to be seen. He would get back to the neighborhood as soon as possible. He would need to change clothes, which is another indicator that he lives in the neighborhood. Once he was cleaning up, I believe that he would make contact with someone, anyone. He would want people to remember seeing him and even being with him while they searched for the boys. Remember that in my opinion, this is someone with a known personal relationship to at least one of the victims. He's someone who other people would expect to be concerned that the boys were missing. They'd also expect him to help look. 
Now, given his maturity and criminal experience, he knows that his concealment job should keep the boys from being found for a while. Hours, certainly, perhaps even days or weeks. In his mind, by the time the police find them, they'll never be able to know exactly when they were killed, so he just needs to blend in with the other searchers. Many times in these situations, the offender will even feel that it would be an indication of innocence if they personally find the bodies. Oftentimes, and this information comes from the FBI profiler discussions regarding the case of John Bonet Ramsey, they will try to get someone else to go with them to the body so that they will have a witness when they happen upon the victim or the victims. Now, that doesn't seem to be the case here. However, I would be suspicious if anyone attempted to get someone to go with them to the discovery site unsuccessfully. Once the bodies were found, our offender would be smart enough to know that he cleaned up the scene enough that the police wouldn't have any real leads. Remember, again, this is before DNA was as prevalent and understood as it is today. The only way that he's going to get caught is if he gets caught in a lie. And it's for this reason that our unsub likely would have avoided the police altogether. Crime TV shows will tell you that it's common for the offenders to interject themselves into the investigation. While this can be true, it's important to point out that the reason they're doing that is to get information about where the investigation is going. They're typically trying to figure out if they need to make a run for it. In this case, however, the investigation was highly publicized. Within a day of the body discoveries, the local news stations were reporting that the boys were raped, beaten, and sexually mutilated. Now, for the actual offender, he would know right away that the police have no clue what actually happened, because he knows that he neither raped, beat, or sexually mutilated the boys. He just drowned them and put them in the water. Also keep in mind that, as I said earlier several times, this unsub has a known personal relationship to at least one of the boys. Therefore, he likely would be getting inside information about the investigation from family members. There would be no need for him to sit down with a detective to gather intel. He can learn everything that he needs to know from a distance. Given all this, I think that he would have completely avoided the police if at all possible, even to the point of leaving the area, at least for a while until the police had another suspect. He would stay completely off the radar wherever possible. So that's it. That's the entirety of my admittedly amateur profile of our killer. As I said, the intent here is to open up discussions. I encourage all of you to think about everything that I just said and let me know what you think. What do you think I'm right about and what do you think I'm wrong about? I want to know your thoughts. Now, the other purpose of going through this exercise with every case that we cover is to fill you in on where I'm coming from. While my logic may be flawed at times, I want you to know that there is logic behind my opinions. In this particular case, I think it's important for you to understand why I keep saying that the place that we're going to next, the original West Memphis Police Department's investigation, is not the direction that I would have gone. So here it is. This is the summary of my profile of our unsub. The murders were committed by a lone offender. The unsub is mature, likely at least 30 years old. He has a known personal relationship to at least one of the victims and is seen as an authority figure to one or all three. 
he himself was likely abused as a child. He has a psychopathic personality. Those at arm's length believe him to be kind and charming, while those close to him fear his violent temper. He would be known by those close to him for his violent reactions to anything that upset his own comfort. He would have a history of violence both before and after the murders, and the majority of his violence would be aimed at those weaker than him, namely women and children. Arunsub is a bully. He would never pick a fight against anyone bigger or stronger than himself. He wouldn't even know how to defend himself against such an adversary, and his ego couldn't handle it. He's a narcissist, which would present to most as cockiness. He has never believed that he could be caught, and would laugh in the face of anyone who says otherwise. He lived in the neighborhood, which is where he entered and exited the crime scene. He had access to an empty house that evening. He was able to return home without anyone around to change clothes. He's either single or his family wasn't home when he returned. He doesn't live in an apartment. He lives in a house. He wouldn't have returned to a place where several other residents could have witnessed coming in with muddy clothes. He was one of the searchers. He would have used the people in the search effort for his alibi. Arunsub is intelligent, at least in a street smart sense, and he's resourceful. He finds it easy to manipulate most people, but he would completely avoid anyone who he's not able to manipulate. His narcissistic ego could never handle anyone getting the better of him, either physically or mentally. He is criminally experienced. He knows how to avoid being caught by the police. He has some history of practicing focus under pressure possibly military or law enforcement, or possibly even a behavior he learned just by surviving an abusive childhood. He's always the calm one in the room when everyone else is panicking. He would have participated in the search, possibly even attempting to get someone to help him, quote, find the bodies. But once the bodies were found, he would have been a ghost. He would have avoided the police at all costs, and possibly even left the area to avoid the perception of being uncooperative. He would not want to have to decline interviewing with the police or giving DNA samples, so he would just not be there. And lastly, our unsub likely has some experience packaging meat either as a hunter or as a butcher. This is where we're going to hit pause on our investigation and make the shift back into storytelling. Starting next week, we will begin our trek down the path that the West Memphis Police Department took back in 1993, the investigation that led to three of the most controversial convictions in American history. This is the story that most of you are familiar with, the convictions of the West Memphis Three. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is our executive producer and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 5 artwork was also created by PutThemInASong.com and Shane Yoder. I want to thank Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Britta Bliss, Anna Dindorf, and Stephanie McConnell. 
And as always, thank all of you for all of your engagement and support. Make sure you continue to keep in touch with us through email or social media. And please take advantage of our 24-7 voicemail line at 269-224-2833. You can call that number anytime, day or night, to leave us a question, a comment, or a tip. But however you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.